Hello, friends. Welcome to Against Everyone with Connor Abib 200, part two. Part two of this massive episode, this three-part episode. Um, three episodes over three weeks featuring six conversations. Each conversation has two previous guests of the show in conversation with each other and me on a theme. These are people I've loved talking with. Most of them have been on the show more than once in conversations with someone they might never talk to without this show bringing them together. The idea is a sort of conversational alchemy. What happens when people in different disciplines speak? What sort of new substances or ideas or directions arise? For instance, what happens when a paranormal expert talks with a mortician? What happens when an occult teacher talks with a mystic comedian podcaster? What happens when a New Age scholar talks with an anarchist organizer? This time, it's a conversation with Lacanian theologian Peter Rollins and cultural critic and chronicler of transhumanism Mark O'Connell on immortality. I can't have faith myself. I just I don't have that in me, I think. Um, I don't believe that Christianity or any other uh, theistic faith is true. But I also believe that people who believe that have access to a deeper level of truth than I, in my basically kind of rationalistic view of the world, do. And that is a straightforward contradiction, I think. But I also find it, you know, I, I can't get away from that idea. Can I try and convert you now? Can I give you a go? Yeah, that I can give you? Here you go. Here you go. Um, this would be a good podcast if I convert Mark on air. Um, so one of the first, def- one of the most systematic, simplest definitions of God was given by Anselm. Um, and it was that's than which none greater can be conceived. So, and what he meant by that is not God is conceivable, but the word God is a signifier for something that cannot be grasped. Now, Technically, and, and this is what Lacan would say, is that we need a signifier for lack. We need a signifier for something that is nothing. And so for me, the word God, so it's not theistic or atheistic. The word God, from a Hegelian perspective, is simply the signifier we use to describe something that is non-reducible to the material. And death is one of, is the, is one of the main names for that. Death, you can't taste it, touch it, see it, feel it. It is kind of the loss of all of that. And mystery thriller horror writer Sarah Gran with artist and journalist Una Mulally on art. Because we have these feelings of horror about the world and we need art to release those feelings from us for us to give our feelings into that art so that our fear, our tension, our nervousness, our um, horror is then released into the artwork and that feeds back in and that's what gives us meaning and we give meaning to it and then then the feeling is is released and channeled the the kind of the novel as uh an embodiment a radical empathy tool absolutely uh, writing fiction is a process of it can be a process of telling someone things right that's what i don't want to do but it can also just be a process of being with people and things and one of you I said it is unlocking something within you Another one said it is letting you uh, think the thing you wanted to think anyway. Those are sort of beautiful positions to come from with humility, where it's not, I have something to teach you. It is, let me sit with you while you do this thing. And that I think Mm -hmm. is just what I was thinking about yesterday. Just like I said, I've been thinking about this a lot. But when it comes to like these really, really dark things, and we've talked about this too, Connor, and 
when you're writing this incredibly dark material, it is confusing to me why I do it. It is confusing to me what I or anyone gets out of it. That is still a complete mystery to me uh, after, you know, 50 years of life of thinking about this. You know, and engaging with art is such a profoundly um, needed act because it functions by not functioning in that realm, by being irreducible to function. And that's why art that is reducible to function, that merely has some political message or some sort of glib message, is actually becomes useless because it's so focused on function that it just merely becomes an extension of the political or economic apparatus. Well, okay. So before we start with all of that, let me talk a little bit about immortality and art. Um, because the two are tangled together, right? People seek to be immortal through artistry. And what does that mean? And through making something or through leaving a legacy or whatever. For me, immortality is both a reality and not a reality. Since, as I've discussed on the show many times before, but maybe you haven't heard it, I experience reincarnation as true, um, as real, then the idea that we die is simply not true. And we go on and we we go through this uh, death process that brings us into a new kind of life between death and the next life. And then we go through another death process, which is the birth process. So we have this unbornness and then we are born and we become again and again and again until eventually maybe we transform into beings that somehow leave that cycle or have uh, an intention or a choice uh, of leaving that cycle. Without going into why I think all that's true, there's lots of other episodes of this show that will go into that for you. Um, I would say that that banishes this idea that we don't talk about death, we don't think about death, um, because we're always avoiding it. Rather, we don't think about it or talk about it because the death process is part of us, and we know we don't die. So the thing that we're afraid of, really, is the narrative about death, which isn't true. Um, when that narrative arises, that death is the end, that we just cease to exist, um, that that is terrifying because that's the presence of a terrifying uh, tone of consciousness. If you want to get spiritual about it, that's the presence of a being that scares the shit out of us. That narrative or that presence or that being of materialism is there in everything we see around us. When you look at other people, when you look at animals, plants, everything, you think that's all going to go away. Even when you look at buildings, something that seems as permanent as buildings or even more, uh, a river or a mountain, we can say to ourselves, that will die. And yet I will continue. There is a part of me that is eternal and therefore uh, is distinct from all of that. All of this is given to me in a way for me to uh, experience the eternality that I have. So there's an eternality to being cast out into a world of impermanence. So there's a, seems like a contradiction there, but maybe there's not a contradiction. Let's talk about this a little bit more. <laughs> um, there's 
also uh, a gap between the way we view the world and um, the way we really experience things. So we think of things in terms of there being uh, a material world filled with objects, filled with stuff, yet we apprehend that through consciousness. Um, consciousness is obviously primary. Anything you think like, yeah, but the world's just stuff. The world, the reality must just be things. The inescapable truth is that that's a thought, that that concept is emanating from your consciousness or rising up or unfurling or whatever you want to say from your consciousness. There's no secret door to escape your unconsciousness and into the world. It's just not possible. And thinking about that that could happen is, again, a thought. <laughs> so, again, there's this way in which the world is all consciousness, my consciousness, um, yours, <laughs> if <laughs> presumably you're listening, uh, and that the world is cast before us uh, in a way that looks like it's external to our own consciousness. So the external world is a part of our consciousness that appears to be outside of us. And these two gaps between what we perceive, what we experience, what our ideas are of something versus what is actually occurring, um, these are gaps that we learn from. There are lots of gaps like this, these splits in our subjectivity, these splits in experience and perception. And that gap is really generative. It's like this space of separation, of nothingness, of lack. It's completely productive and generative. It's a nothingness that generates. Creatio ex nihilo. Something created from nothing. But I will go on to add <laughs> that that nothing is a something. It is a form, an opaque, unattainable form which creates. So anytime we're creating or understanding or connecting even, <laughs> relating, it's because we're encountering that positive nothing, that non-space of separation to understand what is not yet understandable to us, to try to apprehend. If that doesn't make sense, because, I mean, why would it? That's a weird way to say things. <laughs> Let me give an analogy, which I think might be more than an analogy, might actually be an example. But it's in the same way that vowels don't employ the same tongue and teeth and mouth movements as consonants. Consonants, you know, if you can just feel them as you speak them, they do something different with your mouth um, and the air. Vowels use opening and air in a different way. They use space differently to weave together the solidity of the closed consonants to create words. So that is a nothing that's really a something that weaves together other aspects of being. The vowel weaves together the consonants to form words. 
So that nothingness, that gap in perception, that's also a something. And all our blessings come from this nothing, this lack, this emptiness, which is not a nothing, but a something, which is not a lack, but an abundance, which is not an emptiness, but a fullness. It's not a nihilo, but a spiritus, a being, a spiritus. Human beings express themselves as a resolution to that nothingness. What do I mean by that? Well, the death and the eternality, the insiderness and outsiderness, the somethingness and the nothingness, that all resolves in the fact that we exist. We hold them. They meet in us. In fact, they've already met. They are within us. And they just sort of separate for our use for us. The spiritus of nothing recognizes us as a resolution between all it binds. Human beings are the answer to the question of the nothing, or if you want to say that the nothing is Christ or another spiritual being, human beings are the answer to the question um, that was present before the question was asked. <laughs> art, to go on this theme of art and immortality, art is a way in which we try to externalize this sort of being, the way that we try to express the fact that we are the resolution the spiritus is always hoping to show to us and to itself. We make art by transmuting light and symbols and vibrations and movements and colors and substances. They all become reflections of what we can't see in the material world alone. That's why it's creation. We're creating. We're reflecting aspects of ourselves that aren't already in the sort of creation or the created world of what we call nature or civilization or whatever. No wonder it feels like making art can make us immortal because when we make art, we express the eternality, the total emanating consciousness, that huge somethingness, that spiritus of our own being, the resolution of all of those contradictions, which existed even before the contradiction did. So maybe you're just like, Connor, just get to the episode because this is all very confusing, but I hope it's interesting to you. <laughs> it's something that I thought about, certainly in these conversations with Mark O'Connell and Peter Rollins and with Una Mullally and Sarah Gran. Um, if you want to just sort of explore or listen to one episode rather than the other, one, sorry, one conversation rather than the other, you just skip ahead um, about an hour each section is about an hour long. Being up to 200 episodes of Against Everyone with Connor Beeb um, means that I and this and you, the listener, are in a tiny, tiny percentage. <laughs> Most podcasts do not last this long. It is something like less than 2%, something like that. I can only keep doing this show if people support it on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. I know that we are all in this economic, political, cultural roller coaster, post-pandemic, whatever, and it's affecting everybody in different ways. That said, 
the art and culture you love are great places to center and support um, that love, to center and support a givingness. So, um, and I do think they can feel very either grounding or freeing, <laughs> however you want to say it, um, while all that other shit is swirling around. If you don't already, please do give to Against Everyone with Connor Abib by going to patreon.com forward slash Connor Abib. Additionally, you can tell people about the show, and if it feels okay, um, you know, tell them to support it on Patreon, especially if you have friends who listen to the show that don't support it, um, or if you are one of those friends. <laughs> you can also give the show a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts that raises the visibility profile of the show, and of course, you know, share it on Twitter, Instagram, any thoughts or quotes that are inspired by the episodes, whatever. Thank you so much for getting to episode 200 with me, getting here with me and being a part of these conversations. And uh, I'm so excited for these episodes where we go from the two into the three um, (laughs) with each conversation. And I really appreciate you being part of this. Okay, here we go with part two on immortality and art with Mark O'Connell, Peter Rollins, Sarah Gran, and Malali. Here we go. Hello, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Hello, Mark O'Connell and Peter Rollins. Hi, great to be back. <laughs> hey, Connor. Nice to be on the podcast again. So I think I think we'll start. Yeah, I think we'll start with living forever. Um, <laughs> I think, um, you know, it's something that I think about in in what you both do and write about and talk about whether markets transhumanism are sort of prepping for the apocalypse. Um, or I think Peter, whether it's, you know, a sort of longing to only think about death in a certain way. I was thinking about, you know, before we started how I think that the sort of urge to live forever is so often framed in terms of a fear of death or a fear of dying but that seems so reductive and simplistic to me in a way that I think that can't hope to encompass this dream really any more than, you know, um, any more than ideas of sort of like the selfish gene constantly reproducing itself because it doesn't want to terminate or whatever. Like it just seems so simplistic. So can we talk about this longing about living forever and, um, who has it who's got it and why yeah <laughs> maybe start from there very good um well i well i start and throw in a few comments and uh yeah like i might want to frame this longing um as a fear of nothingness a fear of lack um you know death is one of the names for a nothingness, probably the one that frightens us most in some ways. Like there's the nothingness before we were born, but we don't really care much about that. But uh, the nothingness that we're hurtling towards might might make us worry. Um, 
But a lot of the existentialists brought out, I think, a really interesting point that death or lack, even if we could live forever, even if we could get rid of, you know, push that back indefinitely, put off our appointment with death um, and for the, you know, till the heat death of the universe or whatever, um, there's still a type of lack that marks us. Um, in psychoanalysis, there's actually, I would say, there's evidence that there is life after death which is subjectivity. You know, so Freud would basically say that we are the evidence of life after death. There's, there's a fundamental loss called castration, a fundamental lack that births us into existence. And we experience this in terms of, say, guilt, which is not being who I want to be. So there's a lack of being. I am not who I would like to be. Or meaninglessness. I am not. I do not have a meaningful life. I lack meaning. So... You know, I frame my whole project really as um, in some respects that we as human beings fear lack in all its forms. We don't like guilt. We don't like anxiety, the fear of nothingness. We we don't like the experience of meaninglessness. We fear death. And a lot of my project is about saying that um, how do we see that lack or nothingness or death is actually woven into the very fabric of the universe, um, so I don't know if that kind of like broadens it out too much or too philosophical at this stage, but um, I do think that humans have, we have a fear of, of lack um, and that God becomes the ultimate filler of the lack, but also commodity satisfaction, psychedelic enlightenment, sexual liberation. There's lots of ersatz gods, lots of ways we try to fill this lack and try to avoid it. Hmm. Yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll say a little bit, I guess, about, um what i've written about in terms of immortality i've written about it from a i suppose ostensibly a very materialistic perspective in that in my first book i'm writing about transhumanism which um i imagine you maybe know a little bit about but um it's really a movement that sets itself up as highly rationalistic as you know in in every way completely at odds with any kind of religious view of life or any kind of religious project. But what really interests me is the way in which uh, transhumanism as a way of thinking is essentially a kind of, a kind of religious sensibility. And it, it addresses itself, I suppose, towards that same lack that you were talking about or that same fear of nothingness um but the way that it wants to approach it is through kind of rolling up the sleeves and saying look we have technology we can we can get around this problem in a, in a sort of mechanical way um i consider it to be a delusion a very interesting uh delusion um but one of the things that interests me most about it is the way in which it is kind of uh, arises from the same uh, dissatisfaction, I suppose, as as so much uh, religion kind of addresses itself towards. Um, you know, I, I wrote an entire book really about this, about this desire to kind of circumvent uh, mortality. And I still don't really quite know where I stand on it. You know, my kind of basically sort of uh, rationalistic view of it is that, you know, I'm okay with dying personally. Um, but I'm not sure I would have written the book if I was okay with dying, I think there's something in me that uh, wants to evade my own mortality. Um, you know, in most cases through just not thinking about it. Um, but yeah, I think, um, I think, yeah, what, what you've said about lack 
uh, is is really interesting to me because it, it, I mean that doesn't sound like what I would. Uh, I mean, is that a, is that a Christian way of thinking about this, or is that your own? Yeah, so it's not a confessional Christian way. So it's not yeah. what you find within yes, confessional Christianity, the church. But it, there's an argument um, that, uh, and I've got some questions for you as well. But I'll throw, throw this in. Yeah, there's an argument that one of the interesting things about um, the idea of the crucifixion is it's it's the first time in history where, in a sense, the idea of God dying um, comes into existence. So traditionally, gods don't. God doesn't die. God is eternal. God lacks death. God lacks lack. And so the philosopher Hegel really find it interesting that, you know, Christ on the cross not only dies, kenosis, but there's a double kenosis because God also experiences separation within God. So God, God says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this notion that God or the absolute or reality itself is divided, it was a, was a kind of like a, uh, a very novel idea and for someone like Hegel even though he you know it predates a lot of modern science he would have found it interesting that you know in physics we might call this um, uh, superpositioning or wave particle geology in politics we call it democracy the non-at-oneness of the political body that creates civilization in biology evolution the non-at-oneness of the biological organism that creates complexity Hegel would see all of these as versions of the death of God that that somehow the universe has an asymmetry um, or a contradiction of its heart. And I think radical Christianity um, is, is, uh, is about trying to kind of like orient ourselves towards that. Um, if I could say one thing as well, you brought up something really interesting there, which is for me, confessional religion is largely about trying to avoid lack and the ultimate lack death. And it feels like almost transhumanism, the little bit I've read of it, is saying like, oh, we, we can cash the checks that religion can't, right? So religion's promised eternal life, but, you know, hey, we might be able to actually cash those checks. Um, but the radical thing for me is even if you abolish death, um, you wouldn't abolish lack. As I said, the lack of guilt, the lack of meaninglessness, the other ways that, that nothingness or lack infuses us. Because desire, by its very definition, is lack. To desire is to lack. So we are lacking beings. So for me, um, transhumanism is almost like taking up, as you said, I think you said it there, that taking up the reins of confessional Christianity. Um, and that, while that's interesting, I don't think even if they were successful in creating eternal life, that would um, that would get rid of death at all or or lack. Right. So yeah. death itself is not the problem. I, I think that's. That's interesting, you know. Um, yeah, because I mean, transhumanists tend to frame it in that way that you know the the biggest problem that we have is death. Everything else kind of pales in comparison to it, um, and that strikes me as maybe a misunderstanding of death, but certainly a misunderstanding of of life. Um, and that's sort of what drove me to 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 tackle this stuff. I think in the book, um, part of me thinks that. I'm, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be a Christian in some way that I'm, I'm trying to believe, you know, I write a lot about uh, things in a way that kind of backs up uh, in a sort of a, a sidewise sort of way on religious questions. Um, I can't, I can't have faith myself. I just, I don't have that in me, I think. Um, but there is a part of me that it's almost sort of contradictory. And maybe I'm sort of wandering off the path here a little bit, but I have this sort of strange idea 
and maybe this is not an uncommon idea, but that I don't believe that there is a God. I don't have faith. I don't believe that Christianity or any other uh, theistic faith is true. But I also believe that people who believe that have access to a deeper level of truth than I, in my basically kind of rationalistic view of the world, do. And that is a straightforward contradiction, I think. But I also find it, you know, I I can't get away from that idea. So I definitely want to explore that because I think that's such a fascinating point. But I want to make sure... I say something about the what you guys were sort of batting back and forth there with the lack in transhumanism where I was thinking about the 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 increasing presence of things via technology and co- computers and this sort of thing that um that are created by us but sort of live through I mean live isn't the right word but operate through or exist through a language that again, we've created, but that we can't understand, that most people don't understand coding. And even the people who are coding don't usually understand coding now. So like, so even if we were to abolish death, like the language by which these tech sort of (laughs) beings or whatever run um, is a language that most of us can't get at or, or understand. So like now coders will they'll code one language that's code for a kind of sub or more complicated or more or simpler, but much longer language that codes for another language. So people are putting languages on top of languages on top of languages, and it's removing them so far from what they've created. Actually, I think, and maybe we'll go this way or not, but like, I think that's actually when people are talking about AI, I think it's AI is almost like a, I think of it almost as a form of uh, labor alienation. Like if I keep creating something with languages that are so foreign to me that I become more and more and more and more removed from this thing that I've created, eventually it'll be looking at me and I'll think that it's real and it has consciousness Mm -hmm. because the umbilical cord is so long Mm -hmm. that it seems to, um, I mean, maybe umbilical cord is too living a metaphor that it seems it's so far away from me that it seems to be looking back at me with its own consciousness, but actually it's still connected to me, maybe the plug or whatever. But so I was thinking about just that, like that the language is the place where the, the lack would thrive, whether or not death continued or, or not. Well, hundred percent. I mean, language, and this is the, the difference between communication and language, which I think is really interesting. And, and when, and maybe it's already happened or can it happen that computer coding can actually become language in the technical sense. Communication is where, um, is, a, is a sign language. Uh, animals communicate, so they make a certain sound. It means there's a predator or another sign. It means they want to mate. And so that's communication. In psychoanalytic theory, um, as you'll know, like, uh, Language begins when something drops out. Language is almost is the is the point whenever you can't communicate. You you always miscommunicate. There's always an element of a lack. You ne- an apple is never an apple. You can never just buy a pair of jeans. Even if you buy a pair of normal jeans, you're defining yourself symbolically as the kind of person who doesn't buy expensive jeans, right? You can't just buy a cup of coffee. There's a certain um, lack and there's a certain movement of signifiers that's within language. At the moment, you know, computer coding would be communication. 
if computers ever speak language, then they would be creatures of lack. And I find that interesting. So for me, transhumanism for me is attempting to overcome lack. Uh, but I don't think it's possible. Like I think lack is, is hardwired into the very fabric of reality. Um, I say even Godel's incompleteness theorem shows that mathematics has a kind of contradiction at its heart in terms of its axioms. Um, so there is a really interesting thing for me is if AI ever gets to the point of intelligence, it will be a lacking subject and it'll be lacking in a different way from us. But <laughs> I'm really interested in what that lack will look like. Mm. That makes sense. But but language is, is infused with lack. Yes. Would it would it be I don't know, like just that it can't identify with its parent? And would that be that much different than us? You see what I mean? It's like its language is so much different than the language of its parents that like there's actually no uh ability to relate to the inner experience of it. Well, yeah. the, the and in some ways, in some ways, I just want to say I'm resisting even having this conversation because I hate talking about AI as if it's an inevitability, <laughs> which I think people do all the time, like talk about <laughs> robots that have consciousness as like it's on its way. But I actually don't think that it is. I think that that's a misapprehension. But maybe actually, Mark, you don't you don't agree with that. So I don't. Well, I don't. I don't know really. I mean, I feel like um, what we mean by AI. Uh, and I presume in this conversation, we're talking about like sort of yeah. super intelligent AI or whatever. Yeah, we're not talking about <laughs> algorithms. For right. Sure. The yeah. stuff that we're probably using or is using us right now without us yeah. knowing that's all AI. Um, but yeah, I think like the the horizon of what we mean by like human level intelligence keeps shifting. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think it's it's inevitable that we will have a sort of a HAL 9000 situation um, at any point. Because, you know, we don't understand how consciousness works. We don't understand how the human brain works. And I, I think the the sort of higher you get in in uh, the various kind of computer sciences that are germane to artificial intelligence, the less likely you are to have people in the sort of Elon Musk sense talking in this really gung-ho way about how super intelligent AI is coming and all that kind of stuff. I think uh, a lot of those, a lot of those guys would, would agree that it's quite a long way off and maybe even not achievable. But as we were talking there, I was thinking of this um, story, about you know, the, the science fiction writer, Ted Chiang. Yeah. Is, um, that, the, is that the guy who wrote Arrival? He wrote a, yeah, he wrote the oh. story. It's called Story of Your Life, which is which is the basis of the film Arrival. But he, he's got this wonderful story. I just read it recently, actually, um, in that same collection, which is called, I think it's called On the Evolution of the Human Sciences. Um, and it's kind of what you were talking about, Peter, about lack and and you know what you were saying, Connor, about the um the child that can't understand its parents. It made me think about this story because it's it's a really beautiful, really in some ways quite simple, but also kind of mind-blowingly complex story, which takes the form of a um, uh, an article in a scientific journal. It was published actually first in Nature back in like 2000, I think. Um, and it basically takes as a premise the idea that uh, human, um, uh, what's the word, sort of uh, enhanced human intelligence has been a reality for the last couple of generations. and as a result, science is now something that unenhanced humans can't understand. So humans are kind of reduced to, um, what's the word, uh, hermeneutics, I suppose, to sort of like trying to uh, find metaphors for and, and try to find ways of reading and understanding the science that has been created by by these like enhanced AI humans. And there's this kind of 
growing gap or lack uh, where humans can't really do science anymore. And they kind of are becoming increasingly kind of uh, cordoned off by their own sort of irrelevance and their kind of irrelevance to to the current science. Um, so, yeah, it just made me think of that a little bit and that sort of, uh, you know, idea of the parent that can't understand its child and the child that can't understand its parents. Yeah. There's a there's a great um Soviet uh philosopher, um Ilyenkov, I think it's Ilyenkov. He um he has a fascinating kind of reading of the cosmic history. And his notion is basically that the universe eventually kind of will will die of a cool death. Let's imagine eventually everything goes to absolute nothingness, um, complete entropy. And that's a bit of a dilemma because you kind of go like, well, why does anything exist? If it only happened once, it's like statistically very unlikely. You know, we can, we should maybe postulate that this just goes on for infinity, right? Universe after universe after universe. So he postulates that for that to happen, there has to be a big crunch back to the singularity to start everything off again. So he thinks of basically what the universe does. And this is in a nutshell. It's a great for a sci-fi movie actually, but is that the universe creates a kind of intelligence and that intelligence can create a technology that will eventually be powerful enough to reverse entropy and therefore to destroy everything and start the universe again. So what we're doing is we're in moments in the history of creating a very advanced AI with the ability to destroy the universe <laughs> and restart it. Um, and it's cosmic communism because only a communist would have the self-sacrifice to destroy everything for the sake of everything. <laughs> so maybe that's what we're doing. We're creating the ultimate destructive AI. <laughs> well, I, I love that we're edging towards Mark's other... Um, book which is about the end of the world i mean i was thinking when you were talking before well first i'm going to say you know that's also like a larger version of adam phillips's i mean psycho psychoanalytic like proposition in darwin's worms where basically he's like look we're just everything we do is leading us to our death so really our death is our only project you know like in some sense like the only thing we're ever working on is our own death like us having this conversation right now and me drinking the cold brew that I'm drinking and you inhaling the LA air Pete, and all that kind of stuff. Like we're all working on it. And then, you know, and Rudolf Steiner has this thing where he says, you know, we're all like, basically our job is to herald the death of the earth. Like we just stop thinking about it in terms of saving it. Like what we're supposed to do is kill it, which is a whole like <laughs> completely different way of seeing it. But how do we do that in a loving, moral and ethical way? It's a completely yeah. different question. But then, like, I think it all ties into what you said before, Mark, when you were talking about this sort of layer of experience of people that believe in God, even though you don't. Like, you and I were walking through Dublin, and you, we were talking about bombs and, I think, like, nuclear bombs or something like that. And you were like, oh, it's always made me feel so uncomfortable. Like, I don't even like talking about it. And I was like, oh, it doesn't really bother me. Like, I... <laughs> I accept and understand and experience reincarnation as true. I think it was climate change we were talking about, was it? Oh, is that what it was? It was climate change. Okay, whatever. Whichever one of these it is. Well, then you'll and, be reincarnated um, was, back into the planet. That's terrible. You'll just keep dying. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you just get this like cycle, right? But we only reincarnate as people, but people don't always have bodies. So that's a whole different. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but so... Um, and you don't always reincarnate on the same planet, probably either. That's a whole other thing as well. But I was just thinking like, 
you were really envious of me saying that, but you're like, well, I can't get there. Like, can you just like help me? Like, (laughs) let's get there. You know, like essentially asking me to sort of brainwash you (laughs) with my reincarnation (laughs) stuff. But that is like in another sense also, Peter, it's like, uh, like, you know, reincarnation is like life, death, you know, the life that you have between dying and the next life, that unbornness, and then life again, and then death again, it matches in some way that project that you were just talking about, you know, um, again, on a personal level. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I'm sort of thinking, you know, maybe we need to talk about, you know, the ideas and fantasies about the end of the world now, because is that, I mean, it seems like that layer of, oh, I want to have that deeper experience has something to do perhaps not with your own death, Mark, but maybe like the imagining of everybody's in a way as well. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know why you're talking about what I said earlier about the sort of the paradox of people believing something that isn't true, getting at a deeper level of truth. Right. Yes. Um, Yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, I guess everything has to do with my own death as you've kind of, uh, eloquently established by adam phillips um but i don't i mean i don't, I think i'm just curious you know i think it's i think it's more simple than that even i mean maybe i'm curious because i'm gonna die and i want to find out stuff but i think i'm just curious about the nature of reality and i, I feel a real dissatisfaction about the kind of um you know, it's not like I'm sitting around reading scientific journals either. You know, it's not like I'm I've I've drilled through the the bedrock of what's what's knowable from a rational perspective. Um, I just feel that, uh, and I can only again express this in in uh, terms of a paradox. I always feel it. There are various writers who who I feel it with. Um, Annie Dillard is always the example that comes to hand for me because there's something kind of profoundly um you know uh irrational i suppose about her best work there's something kind of slightly crazy about it and like her faith is completely alien and wild to me but it seems like she has a kind of visionary access to a form of truth that is just inaccessible to me because i don't believe something that i feel to be untrue or that or that truth is inaccessible to me you know I, I remember speaking to um, a Catholic priest about this once. Not, I mean, I was doing it for, I was writing a, an article actually for a magazine about the last remaining young Catholic seminarians in, in, in Ireland. This was about five or six years ago. Um, and the conversations I had with these guys tended to, uh, you know, unsurprisingly turn towards faith. And some of them had like doubts of their own and some of them had struggles with their faith, which was like really interesting. But one of them was like a very young, uh, very, I suppose, unsurprisingly dogmatic uh, young Catholic as a kind of a, a young parish priest. And I, I gave him some version of this, or, or at least what I said was, I don't, you know, I, I want to have faith. I would not necessarily Catholicism, but some kind of belief in, the, in transcendence. Um, and I would like to think that there is a God. I would like to believe that. Um, but I can't, I can't break through my own rationality. And he gave me the kind of, um, you know, I suppose the leap of faith chat, which is that, you know, you, it's because it's not true that you have to, that you have to believe it. You have to embrace it because, or despite of your 
uh, inability to to believe it. That's what you have to kind of get past. And I've just never been been able to to see that. I've never been able to kind of make that that leap. Well, I- can I try and convert you now? Can I give you a go? Yeah, that I can give you? Here you go. Here you go. Um, this will this be a good podcast if I convert Mark on air. Um, yeah, yeah. Some philosophical respect. This is interesting. So one of the first, def- one of the most systematic, simplest definitions of God was given by Anselm. Um, and it was that's than which none greater can be conceived. So, and what he meant by that is not God is conceivable, but the word God is a signifier for something that cannot be grasped. Now, technically, and, and this is what Lacan would say, is that we need a signifier for lack. We need a signifier for something that is nothing. And so for me, the word God, so it's not theistic or atheistic, the word God from a Hegelian perspective, is simply the signifier we use to describe something that is non-reducible to the material. And death is one of is the is one of the main names for that. Death, you can't taste it, touch it, see it, feel it. It is kind of the loss of all of that. And and taking Kierkegaard and making him a radicalizing Kierkegaard, he says faith, all faith is, is the realization of contradiction. So Potentially, here's here's the argument in brief, is that life came out of being. So not being came out of nothingness because of a contradiction in nothing. Being eventually gave birth to life because of a contradiction in being. Life eventually gave rise to consciousness through a contradiction. Consciousness became self-consciousness, self-consciousness, reason. And that movement happens because there's a quantum undecidability within reality so in being we call it i say we have particle duality or whatever but when it comes to biology it's evolution when it comes to consciousness we call it the unconscious so there is a type of lack at each level of of the universe's unfolding and the simon ve would say the name for that quantum undecidability within reality is the signifier god it doesn't commit you to theism or anything like that uh, it's kind of a it's a signifier that just names lack itself and orients us to it. Mm. So do you want to come to the front? <laughs> 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 the altar call. Yeah, I might wake up in the morning and and see the light. But uh, <laughs> yeah. in the meantime, I'm certainly intrigued. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, mean, I, I mean, I have like a question for this though, Pete. And like, it's I mean, it's something that I've had to like, like. I mean, like when you talk about death being the sort of non-materialistic thing, like I, I don't. You can't go that. Yeah, I know you can't go there with me. You can be wrong. You're allowed to be wrong. Well, <laughs> no, like I would say like quite the, I mean, not the contrary exactly, but I don't experience materiality at all. Oh, yeah. Like, in fact, the only time I experience materiality, like nothing is material to me. Except I think I got you to read George Berkeley, didn't I? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I knew. Yeah, you can hear them, but like I guess like Irish philosopher. That's like you know the only Irish philosopher. But like <laughs> <laughs> the, the only you know what? And he just happens to agree with everything I say yeah. before I said it. <laughs> but I. But um, I mean, the, like nothing is material to me except my anxiety and depression, which is basically the agitation or heaviness of time into something that feels like matter to me. Otherwise, I go through my life not experiencing materiality at all. But then, like, if I get freaked out about like uh, 
I don't know, like that I'm going to hurt myself or something like that. Then suddenly everything gets sucked into the, the presence of what I would call matter. But beyond that, I don't really experience it that way. Yeah. So then I'm you're sort of constantly on K ketamine experience. They call it the, the K hole. You know, yeah, you're, yeah, you're very <laughs> well, Cartesian. It, you feel your you feel your your consciousness. Yeah. Uh, well, people always often say that K is the anthroposophical drug. Uh, <laughs> that K is like gives you the experience of being an anthroposophist, which is funny. Which is why, <laughs> if you already are there, like you're really not supposed to take K because it will really like it'll actually just like send you way farther out than you're supposed to be. Yeah. But that is the sort of like way of my experience in the world. So then, what happens? And like what what I'm I think what I try to do or what I want to do um, is get people to the place where that's so for them. So whereas on the one hand, we're talking about it in terms of death and God being the sort of, here's the, here's the name for where we, where our understanding stops because that then allows us to include a sort of lack. Why not more and more and more than that? Why not far, far more than death, but actually most of the material world. And this is the thing that I, I, I guess I'm, I'm it, it's not a disagreement. It's actually just a, a question to sort of run with, you know? Um, yeah. Well, well, I, you know what? I mean, this is not dissimilar for me. I mean, like if you wanted to simplify my metaphysics dramatically, um, it's that there is a nothingness within nothing. There is a, that, that the state of nothingness has, has a subtraction within it. And so everything is the result of a, of a discontinuity of nothingness itself. Um, and I think you can, I think there's, you know, there's ways to argue that, um, but it is a kind of way of saying that, um, like subjectivity itself, I mentioned earlier, for especially the calm, um, the subject is not something. The subject is, um, is a less than nothing. There's, there's, a, there's a dropping out of something. Um, it's just as, just as language communication becomes language when there's a master signifier, when something drops out. So, I, although I'm not, you know, I'm not a, I'm a, an idealist. An, I'm not like a, a Berkeley an idealist. Uh, I do, I do think that 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 being is the result of a asymmetry within nothingness. If that doesn't sound too metaphysical, I'm curious, actually, Peter. What what do you mean when you talk about God? What um, what is what is what is God to you other than a lack or you know, discontinuity of nothingness. Yeah, yeah. For me, that's the only universal. That's what exists. Is so the only universal is negation itself, and so it's eternal. It's a necessary, necessarily non-existing. And so God technically is a definition of that which necessarily exists. But I would kind of say, well, what what necessarily doesn't exist? Um, that and it's it's basically, as I say, this kind of asymmetry, this quantum dimension of reality, um, and that we need this in order to, for the universe to exist and to be subjects to desire, to desire is to have lack. Um, for Freud, a big thing is that the infant's first experience, well, the very first experience of lack for the infant is the bottle or the breast. It's there and then it's not. And they, there's the Fort Dagium. Kids love to throw something away and get it back. The earliest presence and absence game. But then Freud basically says there's another type of absence the child experiences, which is the other's desire. 
which is a present absence because when you feel someone's desire you feel what they're longing for what they don't have and the infant is drawn into life by asking the question, what does the other want from me? What is the other's desire? What, and, and he calls this dasting. The dasting is the enigmatic desire of the mother other, the part of the other that's a mystery that you don't know. And you're asking, what does the other want? And then Freud's big insight, of course, is, well, the other doesn't know either. So we are marked, like it's not just your desire is a mystery to me, your desire is a mystery to you as well. We're marked by this, absence this nothing and that's what drives us by the way it also drives capitalism because we're always looking for the object that will fulfill that lack that will complete us we can't make peace with the dissatisfaction itself and so i say one of the final things for me the reason for religion then is a community is gathered around a shared set of beliefs or a shared enemy that we scapegoat shared set of desires a communion is a group that is that is focused on a shared lack so communion, you, you eat over the death of God. Um, so you have this meal over the death of the absolute. Um, just like AA, you meet together over a shared lack. And for me, we need communions. We need spaces in which we make peace with the lack, the nothingness that's within ourselves in the universe. And as I say, the signifier for that lack for me is God. That's so fascinating to me because um, at first it seems to me as though uh, this is like a a radically abstract way of thinking about God. It strikes me as very abstract in the sense that it's it's very impersonal. But actually, it seems to emerge out of human nature itself, out of the human condition. Yeah. So it's a very human-centered conception of God in a way. Is that fair, would you say? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it very much, like a religious experience has often been about like, you get the you encounter God who lacks the lack, and God fulfills us, right? So that's a lot of this. But this comes from the idea that no, to become human is to experience the absence of something, the loss of something, and so religious experience is where you encounter the loss at the center of everything. And it's, so it's very human because it, right when I talk about the infant, the infant comes into being through a kind of like a lack and experiencing the lack in the other. In fact, Lacan says love. Is giving, he says, love is giving something you do not have to someone who doesn't want it. So mm. what we do not have is our own lack, right? So we, I give you my desire and you don't want it because in a way you want me to fulfill you. You want me to make your life complete. But in love, we become harbors or shelters for each other's lack. And we, we hold that lack and we treasure it. We don't try, we don't fill it. We somehow find a way to nurture each other's lack. And then for me, God is the name for that writ large. God is love. God is lack. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I think something that comes to mind for me when you are talking about that moment with the infant noticing, you know, and wanting the desire, of want, wanting to registering the question of what does the other want? And then also trying to sort of get inside that and provide it, even though the other doesn't know <laughs> what they want. I mean, I think for me, that makes me think of like a, the way that we're all co-composing desire as a sort of totality, like that, that we're all, there's a coincidence of everything that we want, which desire rises out of like, I think maybe I've said this quote to you before, but 
actually maybe both of you, but the Rudolf Steiner quote, which is like, there is no truth, but a coincidence of all truths. And so like, I'm thinking there is no desire, but a coincidence of all desires, but those, you know, like, um, I'm thinking like when we, what that might indicate to me is not a separation between myself and the other, um, but rather the ways in which we are all, uh, sort of composing desire together and that like, you know, rather than community or communion, there's an anarchist, Paul Goodman, an anarchist writer who wrote a book called Communitas, which was basically about city planning and zoning and stuff like that. But the Communitas term and why he chose it is it's an unstructured intimacy among a group that only appears to be a group. And so I think it's something like, I can have a sort of picture when you talk of us all, maybe my death is my own project, but maybe desire is all our projects all at once. That's beautifully said, beautifully said. And if I can throw in, you know, just a couple of things and then I'll shut up. But um, that's, I think it's beautifully said. Our, our desires are very interwoven. Um, I love that notion of communion. So you see even something like Burning Man for me is a type of communion at its best, although it's very hippie now, but, um, you know, because it's gathered together around a shared loss, the burning of the man, the burning of the temple, unified around a shared, not a shared thing that everyone has in common, but a shared loss. Um, René Girard is brilliant on this, where he says that, and this is the original sin, this is original sin, the original sin of desire is to des- well, Lacan says we desire the other's desire, the most precious material in the world. Connor, we've talked about this before, but anyway, is the desire of the one we desire. But René Girard says, so how does this manifest itself? Well, very early on, the infant starts to desire what the other desires. So I, whenever you start going out with somebody without even realizing it, you start to take on their desires. You start to like maybe the same music. You take on different interests. Um, or you can start to desire the type of relationship a person has with what they desire. So you might start to desire a person's partner because their desire makes you desire their partner. Or you might just desire the type of relationship they have with their partner. You don't desire their partner, but you would go, I really want that type of relationship. So the first is jealousy. The second is envy. Or you start to desire to be the other person and that's obsession, or you desire to usurp the other person rivalry. So desire has within it, all of this complexity, like my desire is completely connected to what you desire. I don't have a private desire. My desire is <laughs> is linked with your desires, which brings us into conflict. And then René Girard says, society's most basic mechanism for dealing with the, des- the conflict of desire is the scapegoat mechanism, where when, when society is about to collapse, we have to find someone who we who we're more violent towards so as to get rid of the violence of society so if a couple are going to couples counseling and they really are fighting but they think the counselor is a dick they can be unified in their hatred of the counselor so the counselor is a scapegoat who brings them you know together briefly um but yeah go ahead yeah no i just I'm, i'm just thinking about something mark has written about and it's like all coming up now for me which is like like, do you, because you've talked to all these doomsday preppers, right? Like, did you feel like maybe they were creating these survival skills, which obviously in a lot of cases wouldn't have worked for the disaster that they were preparing for? But do you feel like that they were committing themselves to these skills so they could have they could be desirable to people? 
like so that people would be like, oh, you know that I want to like that. Their idea was like, I'll know these things that people will want me for actually rather. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I never thought of it really in terms of desire as such. Um, but I think that, yeah, there is something to that in the sense that a lot of these guys are like sort of traditional masculinity people, you know, they're sort of like, uh, we've lost old and valid ways of being a man and we've lost our uh sort of power and prestige within our societies and you know being a straight white man and and the of the sort of uh prestige and power that attached to that is slipping away and is sort of disappearing in front of our eyes uh and they're sort of learning skills that are associated with those modes of masculinity and perfecting these sort of uh survival skills and i i'm not sure desire is particularly where they're coming from at least on a conscious level but i think the the idea is to be indispensable to go from being kind of uh on the slide and being kind of dispensable to some catastrophe happening and becoming absolutely indispensable to one's community and one's family and being kind of the center of the meaning of the community again because you can make a toilet or because you can you know uh kill a gang of marauding savages with a bow and arrow or whatever it might be um yeah so i i suppose you know it's it's just a short jump from there to desire i mean uh if you're indispensable i suppose you're by by definition um desirable i was really interesting listening to all that stuff about rene gerard and i'd kind of forgotten until peter was saying it that um one of the people who I wrote about in both books of mine is uh, Peter Thiel. And Thiel, you guys probably know, is like a big Girard uh, booster. And he was taught by Girard in Stanford. And the reason why he invested so early on in, in Facebook was because, uh, you know, it, it lit up this kind of mimetic desire light bulb in his head when he heard about the idea. Well, I didn't do any of this. Okay, I didn't know. Yeah. This is fascinating. Yeah, Thiel actually funds a huge... Uh, it's not huge, but uh, it's it's kind of a it's it's a major sort of vector of of Girard's ideas, uh, Rene Girard Foundation or something along those lines. Um, so he's uh, he's very influenced by Girard. It's hard to see. I mean, I don't know a huge amount about Girard. You clearly know a lot more, but uh, it's hard to see where Teal's more sort of like extremist, libertarian, quasi-fascist ideas might have any relationship with with Girard. But certainly the Facebook stuff. Uh, and of course, Teal is a major funder of a lot of the transhumanist ideas that I talk about in my book. Um, but it's a weird little kind of confluence, and I'm not quite sure That's what. Interesting, yeah, because I I didn't I don't know much about him at all. But I actually know someone. He goes to somebody's church. There's a guy I know, as I didn't even know he was a religious guy. But it makes yeah. sense because Gerard should be bigger than he is, but he's not that well known outside of kind of academic, more theological circles. Um, but that's probably where Teal read him because uh, for, for the christianity angle but um but you know gerard is much bigger than that but he's he doesn't get the airplay he should his his work on the medic desire is is formidable yeah and i think that like the the teal stuff probably causes a lot of noise over the signal because that book i mean what's the is the violence in the sacred is that the name of the book oh yes one of them he's got a few there's one called scapegoat as well but violence in the okay. yeah i remember being really taken by that book before i knew anything about teal or his his connection with him, but I remember being really taken by those ideas. There is that other Rene Girard book on PayPal. Do you guys know that one? 
No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Real inspiration. Weird Connor, actually. I don't know whether this was uh, deliberate, but your hot tail sex machina seems to... Oh, yes. Perfect. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting that you're bringing up Rene Girard and, and Peter Thiel, because I think... Something I think about a lot is, you know, the kinds of the misuse of the of the philosophies and philosophers and ideas that we love. Although I'm calling it misuse, but maybe it's just as appropriate as any other use. Like, I mean, we can obviously find bad examples of Marx being deployed, but and and Hegel and Nietzsche for that matter, but also you know psychoanalysis being applied in you know, um, mass marketing campaigns or Deleuze and Guattari being used by the IDF <laughs> in their in their training, or if we think about Rene Girard being used by Peter Thiel. And so I just want to, you know, I mean, <laughs> Mark's written about despicable people and Peter, you and I are despicable. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but we all sort of, we all sort of work with people that, you know, um, I mean, certainly there have been plenty of allegations made about people, about thinkers that I care about and their ideas and that sort of stuff. I'm just wondering about sort of handling this dangerous and useful substance of ideas and how it shows up for people. I mean, I'm sure, for instance, Mark, a lot of the people you talk to in transhumanist or, or prepper communities, you know, who might have big big ideas or links to them think that they're, you know, using them with the best intentions, for example. But what do we do about that? What do we do when the philosophies that we care about that mean so much to us because they all have the potential to be used in freedom in terrible ways? Like, what do we do about that? Is there anything we can do to sort of safeguard or or work with that? Or is that actually a bad idea too? Maybe that's actually a bad idea. Mm. <clears throat> is there anything that we can do to like ensure that we, uh, because any idea that's powerful is going to be, is going to be contaminated. It's going to be used if like by, by virtue of its power, it's going to be used in all kinds of volatile ways. Right. I mean, the example of Nietzsche is a pretty, pretty strong one you know marx maybe even stronger um yeah i mean i don't i don't know that there is an answer to that question that i have i think you know the more powerful an idea the more likely it is to be used in uh ways that you can't predict or control or might not agree with um yeah i don't really have a and when it comes to um, when it comes to the uh, Girard as well, because that was fascinating to me, I, I go like, oh yeah, I mean, in one sense, Girard's theory of mimetic desire, it's kind of like it's a neutral theory. It's a neutral like anyone can use it. Like you could use that for bad, <laughs> which it sounds like it's been used for. You can use it for good because all it really tells you is is how our desire is mimetically connected to desire. And of course, advertisers use that every day. You have a you have some star who people invest in, they have an obsession about or a rivalry with, and then that star looks at an object. <laughs> and then and then we, through joint attention, which is kids' joint attention, is when they start to look at where the parent is looking. They don't look at the parent, they look at the gaze of the parent. So us, you know, watching the advert, we start to take an interest in the object 
that the person is looking at. So yeah, sometimes with these ideas, they're kind of very neutral, like a fire. They can be used to cook food or they can be used to burn down a city. Mm. I mean, it strikes me as we're talking that we've kind of glossed over or overlooked like the most insanely powerful example of this for me, which is Christ. You know, um, one of the reasons why what I was saying earlier, why I'm so like kind of drawn to and frustrated by Christianity is that I find the idea of Jesus and the stuff that he said incredibly powerful and incredibly moving. But the disconnect between what that person said and what he believed, what he seemed to believe and what he seemed to want people to believe and what's been done in his name is, of course, you know, wildly sort of uh, there's a huge differential there. And it's, you know, people seem to, you know, you know, Christ has probably been used uh, as a guarantor of more evil stuff than maybe any other historical thinker. Yes. Um, and yet, and yet Gerard, yeah, and this is, brings us to the heart of Gerard. Gerard's fascinating insight with Christ was more, to, was the idea that technically it's the breaking of the scapegoat mechanism. So he says like, you know, what society does is when violence, like that woman, remember Jessie Sacco, I think she was called, 2013. She Justine, did a tweet. Justine, yeah. Oh, Justine, oh yes, thank you, Justine. She did a tweet saying, oh, I hope I don't get AIDS. She was on her way to South Africa. It's the only joke and I'm white. Got on the plane. And by the time she landed, there were journalists there because the viral had gone yeah. The tweet had gone viral and she was basically cancelled, symbolically destroyed. And it was just a joke. Like it was a, it was a kind of self-deprecating kind of Simpsons-esque joke. Like, oh, I'm an idiot. I think mm-hmm. I won't get AIDS because I'm white. Um, but it was kind of a, all of the violence on Twitter, everybody was able to unify over hating her more. So she became the scapegoat. For Gerard, he said, well, in Christianity, technically the scapegoat is innocent. In fact, it's God. The one that you scapegoat is the most innocent person of all. And actually, they carry your lack. They carry all the violence of your desire, which is really yours. So Gerard says, Christianity at its core is not about belief in God, not about belief in institutions, not about singing. It's about breaking the scapegoat mechanism, realizing that we put lack onto others that we have in ourselves. And the only thing I think, well, I think Gerard doesn't go far enough. Um, can, uh, yeah, okay, maybe this is going off topic, but I'll say this, sorry, Connor, you can cut this out if you want, if I'm going rogue, <laughs> um, is that the, the ultimate way to break the scapegoat mechanism is to realize not only that we are lacking, that and we instead of putting the lack on other people through tr- through projection we embrace our own dissatisfaction our own unknowing our own lack but also we realize that that unknowing is also within the absolute itself like uh dissatisfaction is woven into the very nature of reality once you realize that you're freed from dissatisfaction because dissatisfaction is robbed of its sting because there's no satisfaction that it's against and so that's and that for me is salvation salvation and, and I'll tell one parable, I think, that gets it, and I'll stop. Parable of three guys, they die on the same day. This mystic, this evangelical, and this fundamentalist, they go to heaven. And as you know, you have to get an interview with Jesus before you get in. So they're waiting there. Uh, St. Peter comes out. The mystic goes in first, meeting in progress, signs turned around. He's in there for half an hour. He comes out. He says, oh, I knew I was wrong, laughing, goes into heaven. Then as the evangelical goes in, he's in there for two hours and he comes out, he's distraught. Oh, how could I have been so wrong? And then goes into heaven. And then it's the fundamentalist turn. 
He goes in there, the meeting signs turned around. He's in there for five hours. The door swings open and Jesus comes out and says, how could I have been so wrong? (laughs) And I told that story 30 years ago when I started my work. And I thought that the mystic was the right person, which is epistemological unknowing before the in itself, the absolute, we do not know. But at this point, as I'm touching 50, I'm like, no, the fundamentalist is right. Ontological unknowing. That it's not that we don't know something, but reality itself knows everything. It's no reality itself has unknowing and spontaneity within it. And once we gain that insight, we gain salvation. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love the story. I mean, I, th- <laughs> I think you, you, you could say that, like, though, that Christ, as he walks out, there is including the unknowingness in his knowing, right? He yes. knows that he doesn't know, right? So, yeah. and then I'm th- I don't know if you guys have seen this show, Midnight Mass. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just incredible. It's this horror series on Netflix, seven episodes long, about this priest that comes to this sort of remote uh, island town somewhere. I think it's supposed to be in New England or maybe Pacific Northwest. I can't remember. And, um, all these strange things, these like miracles start happening. And there's a certain point where they're interpreted a completely, like a completely knowing understanding way by this fundamentalist who has interpreted the Bible in her own sort of way that makes everything completely permissible. Even as things start getting dark and horrifying it's really an incredible, it's a slow burn, but when, when you get there, it like gets there and it's really intense. And I was thinking about that, like, yes, like the fundamentalist who, you know, is in a way sort of saying like, okay, yes, I, I contain everything, but I have to keep sort of using what I know to like swallow up everything so it stays within me knowing so like i think it's how do i say this like it's the way that um you know our our mutual friend peter todd mcgowan says something like the fundamentalist is like always incomplete like not it's not they're not coming out of a complete containedness but they always have this sense of being incomplete and that's why they have to keep sort of swallowing everything up with their fundamentalism like everything has to be sort of constrained it's it's almost conspiratorial in its own way Paul Tillich would say that someone who's certain about something isn't a fundamentalist technically, right? And we're all, when we're young, we think we're right. And parents tell us what we think and we just assume it's correct. Fundamentalism really begins at the moment when you're challenged in your belief and you've got an option of either going, oh yeah, that sounds interesting. I'll have to think of that. Or you close your ears and you repress. And so kind of fundamentalism can be seen sometimes in this modern form as a repressed unknowing. Um, a, a, a defense mechanism against one's own inner questioning. But the interesting thing about the parable that I told is that this fundamentalist who's certain, 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 and questioning, 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 probably freaked out more than Jesus in that interview room because the fundamentalist, through their incessant questioning and their attempts to always have the answer, discover the the ontological horror that the reality is the universe is a chaosmos that unknowing is woven into knowing and uh so that fundamentalist uh ended up probably being saved in that little meeting room (laughs) right right yeah that's it right and that and that's what i 
I think that goes into why I will say always that like the fundamentalists, the problem is that they're not literal enough, Hmm. not that they're too literal, but that actually if they were more literal, they would discover that actually this exact thing that you're saying. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. Most of the people who follow my work are the, are the ones who went so far in religion. They did it all. They weren't the ones who sat back. They were the ones who destroyed their record collections. They were the ones who went to Tajikistan to be missionaries. They were the ones who went so hard and fast into the center and they discover the center does not hold. That's why, you know, Lacan says only, only, only a Christian can be a true atheist in the sense of, you know, the pre that you go so far into it that you find the crack, but you realize that the crack is the truth and the crack is God. Yeah, but good news, Mark, because only the atheist can be the true Christian. So yeah. really you're actually walking mm-hmm. it in a way that um, I'm unable to. So I know, me and Connor disagree. And listen, I love that about the, us, Connor, is we, we have to have more of these conversations in public. I love them because uh, uh, my God of the lack I don't, you've got a God of plentitude, I think, have you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Mark has no, Mark has no God, but I would say, you know, Mark, like, you know, I mean this in the best possible sense. Like it's easy to also envy your shallowness. <laughs> that there's a level of reality that's yeah. there's a, there's a kind you of probably shallow. You're probably living with level of shallowness, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What a wonderful um, conversation. I've so enjoyed this. This has been great. Yeah, me too. Um, Same. It's been really fascinating. Yeah. I hope, I, I hope and I know that the three of us will get uh, more chances to talk in the future. And uh, I'm just also just happy to introduce you to each other because um, very complimentary thinkers and doing things in the world that I think are really important and um, I won't say anything about it here, but um, Peter, also when you find out what Mark is working on now, that'll be of great interest to you. So um, I'll let you guys uh, continue communication once you're back here in Ireland, Peter. And uh, thank you so much uh, for hanging out and for talking with me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for that. All right. Well, I cannot express how excited I am to be talking with both Sarah Gran and Una Malali at the same time. Hello to you both. Hi. Hi. Hi Connor. Nice to meet you, Una. Nice to meet you too. <laughs> um, one of the reasons why I'm so excited to have the three of us in conversation is, you know, I just got back from book tour and I you know, and you you both were parts of that book tour, which was great. And I noticed like one of the things that I kept thinking about on tour and at the events that we did together was the idea of the importance of literature, art um, in its own right, and how often it's reduced to functions of political economy and I know also that you both, because just knowing you well, um, work pretty hard to sort of navigate the gravity of the political realm and the economic realm on the art that you make and do and the things that you want to do. So I want to talk about that navigation and I want to talk about asserting the presence of the artistic, creative, cultural presence in its own right as well. Um, without reducing it to those functions. So whoever wants to start with that 
uh, on, on that foot and we'll, we'll take it from there. Una, you want to jump in? Yeah. I mean, there's so many things to, it's such a huge, um, topic that you're, you're setting out there, Connor. I mean, I think one of the things that I'm increasingly, I'm just going to talk about myself. One of the things that I'm increasingly trying to navigate and I think is so hard to navigate is how do you, um, put objects or thoughts or your own presence in the public realm without uh, soaking in or coming up against all of the things that that demands and that imposes. So, you know, in in an ideal world, uh, if you want to kind of you know just kind of diffuse your ego across all things which is such a paradox obviously because if you're compelled to 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 do something that other people see or that you feel that you have something to say or put out there you know that's obviously an ego driven thing but how do you diffuse that and how do you then not become one of the obstacles that you're trying to dismantle by putting something out into the realm of other people this is like a labyrinth, right? Like, how do you yeah. navigate that? And that's something that I just think about all the time because there's something that happens in your life as a writer, I think, where you start out with this kind of almost baby hair like enthusiasm that the things that you say hold meaning and um, that they land, that people connect with them. And then that can take off. And then when it does, you either do two things. You either jump into that river and that's the river you're going to be in. And that river gives you loads, can give you loads of stuff, money, profile, fame, things that um, people enjoy, but are obviously really, you know, toxic forces. Mm-hmm. Um, or you see immediately those um, things like um, my girlfriend the other day was using this this kind of metaphors of like rocks, rocks in the river. And and those rocks can be really beautiful because they can branch the water off or you can kind of bash up against them. So, or you see, you see those rocks and go, okay, now I have to get over this and I have to transcend this. And so increasingly, I think it's actually a going under all the time, like keep going under. It's not actually about like becoming more elevated or whatever, but just keep going under um, to a depth where those things happen on the surface um that other people can kind of in- engage with the mundanity of those things and then keep diving that's what i'm thinking about a lot a lot um in terms of uh i don't know if that even is relevant to what you're saying but the, but that's something i'm thinking about how yeah you know, the forces i suppose yeah the political and economic forces and all that kind of stuff so i don't know so Oh, sorry. Una, when you say going deeper, do you mean going deeper psychologically? Like in your writing, going to a deeper place, it's sort of uh, above or under like political concerns. Is that what you're getting? I think I think psychologically, but also I think in the culture, maybe it's actually maybe it's not deeper. Maybe it's sidestepping like Mm -hmm. I'm increase. I'm increasingly allergic to attention, which is not helpful for (laughs) um, for 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 a writer. But how do you sidestep? How do you complicate those things all the time um, in the quest to not be met with the forces that apparently are the ones that will motivate and propel you, but for me have become very 
uh, unlikable kind of forces. So yes, deeper psychologically and yes, deeper, you know, away from the mainstream, that river, you know, into some kind of tributary that's actually setting out somewhere new. Um, because that the main, um, the main flows are so seductive and much simpler and, but they just don't have as much resonance, I don't think, but it's, it's a more difficult path, but I think it's easier psychologically so that you're not just commodified and commodifying. I sometimes put the same thing in a different way. I think it's the same thing that it's like, there are certain grooves they can apply to life, to art, to work, whatever, but like, it's the expected train of thought. It is the expected way to arrange your life. It is the expected way to write your novel. It is the expected way to get into this sentence or this scene on, you know, like the huge macro level to a tiny micro level. And it's not that they're bad or evil. It's that there is something that is lost if you don't go off and explore the other thing and that you will be uh, not, it, it will not be an authentic expression of yourself, of the thing that only you can bring if you fall into that groove. So there are certain things like when you have career ups and downs, this is a really trite example, but I think it makes it easier to understand. You're supposed to, oh, it's a downtime. I'm sad. I'm not doing well. I'm not getting jobs. You are, there is a culturally and psychological like group of things you can just fall into, these thoughts you can just take on. Um, whereas you could say, oh, instead, maybe I get a week off. This is great. Mm. My project fell apart. I'm going to go work on my other project and have fun with that. Again, super trite example, but it's, I think to me, an example of how you don't want to fall into these pre-established grooves, which are almost always, I think, especially for women kind of ugly and dreary, and there's a desperation to them, um, to go out and get your own thing. But I have been thinking about this issue so much the past few weeks, a similar, I don't know if it's exactly the same issue. I was talking about it with my therapist in therapy yesterday. I am obsessed with this term that, uh, Connor, I know you're very familiar with, you might probably are too, Una, the subject supposed to know, (laughs) right? This is a term. I learned some version of it in college. I studied cultural anthropology in college and I had a memory, which I think may have been Either I was taught it wrong or my memory is incorrect of this, because I, I cannot find it anywhere of a slightly different phrase, the one who knows. No amount of Googling. You know anthropology, Connor. Maybe you can help me track this down. The one who knows. <laughs> that in a, a, a less complex or, or there, there's no polite way to say like the the other kind of way people live because we don't have like a cultural way of saying it that's really respectful. People who choose not to live in this, <laughs> right? And and the the assumption of the anthropologist is always, oh, everyone believes, you know, that the airplanes are birds. And then you go and talk to them. And they're like, no, no one really believes that. That guy over there believes that. He's the one who knows all the mythology and all this stuff. We, we don't spend any more time than anyone else uh, worrying about this stuff. But then I started talking about it, I asked my therapist, I said, do you know this term? And he said, no, but there is the Lacanian term, the subject's supposed to know. I cannot get that term out of my head. Mm-hmm. And just over the past few days, I'm thinking, how, how do you write books and say things without becoming that subject supposed to know? Because if you were the subject supposed to know to someone else, you were taking something from them. What you were mm-hmm. taking from them is their knowledge that they can know, their understanding that they can figure things out for themselves and learn their own things. On the other hand, sometimes you want to say something. So how can you say something? How can you express something? How can you create work and really talk to people and be there for people, but have it always be giving and never taking? Always not be, not coming from a place of being above, not a place of Mm -hmm. condescension, of pity or of love. But if it's a love that is a little bit above, a little bit smarter than everybody else, 
Um, and maybe that's fine for some people. Maybe that is actually a good place for some people. For me, it's a bad place. For me, it is a place of like utter falseness, utter uh, ego. Mm. Um, I have no answers to those questions. <laughs> but those are questions I've been thinking about. <laughs> yeah. I think it's about, yeah. it's kind of fundamentally about authority, isn't it? You know? Yeah. And it's- yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, so in the Lacanian sense, like this idea the subject is supposed to know is the position that the analyst always holds, right? Which is like, you've come here because you think I know something that you don't. But is that really true? However, yeah. you thinking that brings a value that makes this dynamic work somehow. And it's the same thing that we, every time we encounter a book or a movie, I think that there is like a, or, or any work of art, there's a a sort of feeling of that. Like this person holds something that I don't. But I think the sort of radical shift in that is like, okay, I've moved from thinking that you know something, right? That that um, the way in which I view you as holding something that I don't, that is like greater than me somehow. I've moved from that to engaging in the mystery of your being, which is something completely different. So it's not that you're the subject supposed to know, it's that in some ways you're actually just a subject and I admit that. And the only way I think you can admit that in a way is by extending love to the other person. We don't just know something that is functional or valuable to me. Like rather I can see that you have a sort of existence and I, I, I in some ways <laughs> decide that you exist and I, and I do that through love. So when I read your novel, I mean, this is the thing I kept thinking about this thing that Jennifer Egan said right before I went on tour, which was, she said, look, the, the amazing thing about novels is that more than any other art form, they're a way of being in someone else's mind. Um, that we really are engaging with the mind of the other. And it's not about like nothing's given to us really with a novel. All we're given are symbols and, you know, the symbols of letters. And so we have to co-create within that other person's mind constantly again and again. And so I think that that's a way when we really can get into a novel, we, we are really extending the sort of act of love, not because we know the person, or, or that they know something or hold something that we don't know, but that we are just sort of engaging in the mystery of who they are, if that makes sense. I think underneath that, though, Connor, it's also the mystery of who y- you are yeah. as as the person yeah. engaging with with art of any kind. And, uh, you know, I think the way we talk about art of any kind, you know, a lot of the time we have it wrong. It's like, you know, I used to think this thing, that certain novels or um, anything really theater that it unlocked this thing where you, this is very simple, obviously like it unlocks this thing in you where all these thoughts that you kind of had about something, this person crystallizes it. That's a very obvious example or that somebody makes a piece of art and it evokes all this stuff and it's giving you all these feelings of whatever they're trying to evoke. But that's not the case, I I don't think, because I think the connection and the transmission of art is actually that you have all of those things within you. And when somebody is mirroring that, it's releasing that feeling within you. It's not giving you the feeling. Mm. And I think something that you said, uh, Connor, at the talk that you did with Mark McConnell and Caitlin Doddy was um, she asked you if 
you know, this is a good time to be reading horror or, you know, in, in terrible times, should we be, be reading horror? And you were saying, yes, of course. And I think what struck me about that is like, yes, of course, because we have these feelings of horror about the world and we need art to uh, release those feelings from us for us to give our feelings into that art so that our fear, our tension, our nervousness, our um, horror is then released into the artwork and that feeds back in. And that's what, what gives us meaning and what it gives us, it gives us meaning and we give meaning to it. And then, then the feeling is, is released and channeled. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that the, the kind of the novel as uh, an embodiment, a radical empathy tool. Absolutely. I think the feeling part that's already in the mystery within us is very important as for, as those objects, as things to unlock that and channel it. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say to that, like, I mean, the only kind of like, the only time I feel compelled to say anything on social media now, that's not just <laughs> promotional stuff, which is basically what I think all three of us now pretty much engage with it for, even though we yeah. might've had more of a presence on it before. The only time I feel any sort of, um, where I feel compelled to make an actual statement is one when, you know, is, is when I see something going on that I feel like people are trying to get clear about, but they can't quite get clear about. So when they're grasping for something. So when the Salman Rushdie stabbing happened, like I felt like there was something to say that, that people were really trying for and they couldn't reach. And I was like, Oh, I know how to articulate that quite easily that's a sort of minor version of the second thing, which is I feel like when people feel that they're having, when I can see that people are having thoughts that are counter to the zeitgeist and what's being said, but they need someone to actually just provide the frequency for them to be like, yes, that's it. That's what I've wanted to say. Like um, when, when, when they're feeling a kind of fear about it um, because they're, you know, maybe afraid that they can't articulate it properly or, that, you know, stepping out of line or whatever. And I don't mean that in any sort of iconoclastic or contrarian way. I mean, like really seeing people, I'm like, people can't quite agree with this thing that's going, <laughs> that's going on or that's going down. So I'll sort of step out and say it only to offer someone a buoy, you know, or only to offer someone a life to be like, oh, okay, like here, I can just rest on this. Like, I don't have to say anything. I actually don't have to speak. I can actually be okay with the thought that I'm having. Now, I mean, look, I, I know that none of us, you know, we all have our differing views of social media, but none of us quite like it. And I think maybe Una likes it the least out of all of us, um, if that's possible. Um, <laughs> but I do, I, but I do think those are, you know, so, so ultimately it does filter just back into the evil, evil, like sort of tech um, advertising algorithmic data gathering company that's like drawing all the energy out of the world psychically and literally physically. But I do think that those times when I can speak so no one else feels like they have to be alone in a thought, I think it, it is is worthwhile to me in terms of that kind of projection here. Maybe you can think about this. Maybe you can think about this. And in some ways, I do think that that has an overlap with what I was saying about horror, which was just, and, and Sarah's also written this, you know, some great horror novel and audio series um, that we that we are offering up somewhere where people can, you know, uh, 
almost feel even, even it's so, so weird, feel a kind of ease in being able to encounter the thoughts that they didn't think they were allowed to have or hold or, or, or look at. Yeah, I've been writing horror for like 20 years now, and I still don't know why I do it or why I read it or why I consume it. Uh, it has never made any more sense to me. And like, I could come up with a million answers and you just had a really, really good one. And uh, I very much agree with things that both of you guys just said, like it is uh, writing fiction is a process of, it can be a process of telling someone things, right? That's what I don't want to do, but it can also just be a process of being with people and things. And one of you, I don't remember which one, I just shot it down, said it is unlocking something within you. Another one said it is letting you uh, think the thing you wanted to think anyway. Those are sort of beautiful positions to come from with humility, where it's not, I have something to teach you. It is, let me sit with you while you do this thing. And that I think is just what I was thinking about yesterday. Just like I said, I've been thinking about this a lot, but when it comes to like these really, really dark things, and we've talked about this too, Connor, and uh, when you're writing this incredibly dark material, it is confusing to me why I do it. It is confusing to me what I or anyone gets out of it. Something like Come Closer, which is the book I'm probably best known for, which a lot of people find genuinely quite frightening. Um, I still don't know 20 years later why I wrote that book or why people like to read it. That is still a complete mystery to me. I mean, that's that's not not a question and not a good conversation starter, but it's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I genuinely mm. still don't get it uh, after, you know, 50 years of life of thinking about this. Mm. And what what a weird thing, too, because like if I th- think about that novel, you know, like The Exorcist, so it's it's a novel about possession. If, if you haven't read it, Nuna, and it's like The Exorcist could not be like. The, like any less scary to me. I find the exorcist like laughable. Like, and people find this movie horrifying. But when I, yeah. when I read Come Closer, I was absolutely terrified of the book, which is a book about obsession. So there's also this question of like, why, not just why did you write it? Why are you engaging? But why did I find that scary at all? Is yeah. this other question? Yeah. I don't know why I found it like that horrifying to me, that terrifying. And I, I, I just watched, I don't know if you guys have watched Midnight Mass. Do you know this series? It's by Mike I saw Flanagan. a couple episodes. Yeah, I didn't see the whole burn of it. It's a, it's a very slow burn and it's a, it's a, it's a big mess, but I loved it. It's completely overly ambitious and I love art that tries and like fails, you know, at least. Um, and it doesn't always fail. It's, you know, six or seven episodes um, and they're each an hour long or something like that. And um, it's constantly, it has these moments which... I was watching with my boyfriend and he was just like, huh. and I was absolutely terrified of certain moments. And then he was really scared of other moments and we're moved yeah. to, there's lots of long religious and theological monologues in the show, which is really interesting as well. And he was riveted by some of them. And I found some of them like hilarious and vice versa. And so it's also just giving out like that kind of vibe where maybe the confusion of the author or the creator is also then echoed by the kind of um, bafflement of the person who takes it in. And I don't want to dispel that bafflement all the time either, just to understand it. All right, Una, what were you going to say there? No, no, I'm just listening. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, you want I like do think confusion that. is, to me, one of the most interesting things you can do as an artist where you can connect with someone mm. is be with them in confusion. So you're not presenting an answer. You are presenting... Uh, I don't know either. And I don't think anybody else does. Um, and back to your, I think your original question was, what was your original question, Connor, that set all this off something about 
Because it was interesting. No, I'm not navigating. Yeah. I know navigating, we don't have to go back making, to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like um, I would like just presenting the presenting art, you know, for its own worth and its own sake, rather than just sort of letting it fall into the political and economic realm and then how you navigate that anyway. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The political realm is the, I mean, the economic realm in terms of publishing a book, you have to be part of it to some degree, right? Like I started a publishing company and I can only afford to lose so much money. So in that very literal way, I'm sucked into the economic, you know, the economics of it for sure. Um, But in terms of the actual work itself, it's, I do wonder if the state of confusion for me, not for anyone else, is what I'm going to write about going forward. It's kind of like the only thing I can see actually saying a clear thing about that I can say, well, there is one thing I know. There is no fucking answer here. There is no fucking answer here. And here, I think there's just no answer at all that nobody has. And I think the minute you try to, I shouldn't say you because I'm talking about me, me, I have a bad habit of saying that which I think ties in this you, you always using the third person, which I notice is more frequent in press and in person that people use it a lot more, which I think says something strange and not good. Um, So what I struggle with, not you, I, is, uh, yeah, I think maybe the only thing I have to say at this point in my life, having sort of been whipped around by life a lot and had a lot of different experiences and various times in my life, I thought, well, there's this one thing I can say, this, this is the true thing. And now I feel like, no, that's always going to be the trite thing. For me, there is, at least at this moment in my life, there is no true thing. Mm. Even the really basic stuff like love is everything kindness. I started to write about this yesterday. I don't think I will finish it, publish it anywhere. I think it will end up being a diary entry rather than an essay. But I was like, a lot of writers I've noticed over the past few years have retreated into these simple answers, Mm -hmm. these very simple answers. So writers who 20 years ago, I'm thinking of one person in particular, of course, I won't name them wrote something with profound depth, profound complication, a book that people are still really mystified by. And now her whole thing is kindness. Well, we all just got to be a little kinder to each other. Um, No, that doesn't actually, I mean, we should. I'm all for it. I'm not like (laughs) anti-kindness. I'm very pro-kindness. Well, that's good. We should all be, yes. (laughs) Yeah, but it's something we know. It's something we know. Like I know that. Yeah, yeah. Also, (laughs) if you're in a really tough bind, that's actually not going to do you any good Mm. um there are some situations where kindness isn't going to help someone's got a gun to your head being nicer to them maybe it will work i I pray for you that that will work and that being (laughs) kinder will get you out of that situation we can all think of some brilliant turn of phrase that could turn right nine times out of ten that's not really going to do you any good Mm. kindness is not the there is no universal solve there is no one thing and as a writer it is so easy to fall into this trap of thinking well if i'm talking to people i must have an answer for people so kindness um bad things make you better that's the other thing i notice a lot of people fall into and this is i think i've seen this increase mm. this drive towards simple answers i've seen get more pronounced within literary work itself um those tough things in life it's like a piece of coal turning into a diamond well sometimes sometimes not sometimes they just fucking break you mm. uh so I, yeah. I utterly lost track of my point but yeah no but i think that the like the certainty the the thing with that going back to um what how you were framing this at the star connor it's like the the broader culture rewards certainty you know yes and again yes. that goes back to the uh, authoritarian yes. of media uh structures um and all the stuff around authority and confusion of course everybody knows the more you exist on the planet the more confused you get 
everyone knows that, you know, as time passes as a plane in front of you, if you're continuously harvesting and reaping for knowledge and curiosity, Mm. uh, it doesn't get smaller. It gets bigger. It gets bigger. And then you get up to, you go, oh, I know all of this stuff now. And then you go up another little step and it's like, oh shit, I was only at the first level, you know, Mm. and it just expands, expands, expands. So the idea that people would be more certain or have more answers, the older slash wiser they were, uh, is ridiculous. Like it's completely yeah. counterintuitive, you know, um, and and it's very fake and very phony uh, to mm. be to be the authority or to be the conclusive or certain person. Yeah, there's so much to say. So first, I'm thinking of this song by, I think, my favorite band, probably um, this band Lungfish, which is they they sing these really like the the lyrics are really beautiful, but the sound is just droning again and again and again. Like it's it it's actually quite horrifying music in a lot of ways. But the end of one of the songs, which is called Space Orgy, (laughs) um, like the last lyrics are. I pledge to stand at attention. I pledge to never swerve. I pledge to sing 10,000 more songs in confusion. I will serve. And I'm thinking about like the pledge, you know, um, I'm just serving in the confusion. I don't know what it means, you know, or that maybe the sort of nicer way to say it is there's a, there's a song by another band called owls that I love that the lyrics are, um, I know what I have to do and do it, but I don't know what it is until it's done. You know, mm. and sometimes you don't even know like what that. it is when it's done, you know, but yeah, the, ideally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, but the feeling of I've got to do, and I think <clears throat> that is when we're talking about the expanding, the kind of expanding and contraction works in a very strange way where it's like every lesson that I do learn in life, um, what it does is it takes me to a place where I am absolutely completely unprepared for the next lesson. It's not like I learned something and then, Oh, I get to use this in the next field. Like actually when you really do learn something, you move to a place where you are completely unequipped for what comes next, which is so confusing. And then there's this occult principle in reincarnation where people who like become truly like great in their lives or whatever, (laughs) What happens is with each successive incarnation, they become sort of lesser people, not like greater, like they don't become bigger in stature, but actually it sort of reduces them to like less importance in this sort of social sphere in this weird way, where like if you have someone that's sort of tracing people's reincarnations, you're like, wait, that person is way lesser than that person and that person and that person who they said they were, which you would think it would be the other way around. And that's what we're told that there's this sort of Russian, but actually what happens is this kind of reducing into these kind of more everyday concerns and everyday problems in life. And I think that's also, you know, like completely counter to this idea of like, wow, like the vast cosmic, like profound, blah, blah, blah. And all we need to do is be kind and love each other. Like I have this very human, simple answer for like the abundance and like multitude of, you know, the the cosmos that probably, I want to say that I probably is true. This like sort of kindness thing or this love thing, but do we even know what that means? Like what, what, how, how would we even sort of interpret it? It's more just sort of like, uh, 
it's it's more just sort of like a way in which we can give language to something that we might know is true, but we know is completely inadequate at describing the situation that's in front of us. You know, what does kindness mean when someone has a gun to your head? That is a great question, you know? Um, so, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Una. Oh, yeah, no, I was just thinking of compassion. Maybe people... Yeah. Um, people swap out kindness for compassion because kindness always feels like an act, you know, it's an interaction, whereas compassion is like a deeper inner feeling. That's an energy that's transmitted. Yeah. Compassion is literally being with someone in their suffering. It is not saying I have anything to offer other than that. It's not saying I have an answer. Even the kindness concept implies that I have something to give. Uh, which may or may not be true, but compassion is saying, well, what I just have to give is my presence. I can just be with you in this state of darkness, confusion, or joy, happiness, or boredom, whatever. I will just be with you in your suffering. So I think that is something that is a very different, very different than the idea of I have something for you, but the gift is disempowering. So it's not a gift, it's a taking away. Mm. So even kindness gets, even in like the obvious situation where it seems like kindness is the right thing. I'm just harping on this one example because it's one I've seen a lot lately and because it seems so obviously true. We should all be kinder. But kindness can be pity very easily and pity mm. is disempowering and even humiliating sometimes. Yeah. Um, you can be just making the situation worse. So compassion though means um no judgment right mm. like kindness implies you are or to me at least maybe this is just an association i have in my head i don't know if it's like inherent in the phrasing kindness implies a, a worthy person you know you don't mm. want to be kind to someone who doesn't deserve kindness i'm not going to be kind to a nazi i'm not going to be kind to that sexist person or whatever of course not right but compassion, to my mind, brings up an association of no judgment. Mm. Whatever it is, I will be just sit with you, literally or through my work. You know, you can take this book with you. After I die, these books will be left. And if you were in your moment of confusion or doubt or misery, this can be with you. It can be with your suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. So, I mean, that's a way of talking about art in the way that you were both doing before to some sense where art is a form of darshan where you just sit with where you are with where you are with someone um, mm -hmm. with art. But I'm also thinking about the the idea that like. Um, at, this has come up before um, for me on the show a bunch of times, but it's like this idea that, you know, Rudolf Schneider says to the people who are like going to be doctors that he's talking to. And he's like, look, as a doctor, two things. One, you have to go in the room absolutely knowing that you can heal the person. There can be no question in your mind that you're going to be able to heal them. And at the same time, you have to hold that um, the sort of, whether we object to this term or not, that the karmic forces are real and you're not going to be able to save and heal everybody. He's like, okay. so you have to do both. And if you can't do both, like, then you're not able, then that's not really being a doctor in a sense. And <clears throat> I've just been thinking about this for the world situation in so many ways as well. It's like, I have to, like that contradiction, that lemniscate, like I have to walk into each situation with that. And you're reminding me of it, Sarah, because you're talking about, you know, like, I'm just thinking about the doctor who has to treat the Nazi when they come in. It's like, I'm not, I'm not going to not treat you. 
Like I I'm just going to do the thing that I'm here to do, which is heal you. And also hold that these laws of karma that made you who you are and maybe put you in the situation where somebody rightfully smashed a bottle in your face. <laughs> like, yeah. like I'm going to have to sort of deal with that. Um, so that's one thing that I'm thinking, yeah, I just want to say one more thing. And then, um, yeah, I just want to say one more thing, which is that like all these terms that get utilized by the political realm to make us feel like somehow as individuals and, and individuated beings that we need to somehow come together in a prescribed way are so distasteful and frustrating to me. So like I've been thinking about the term community a lot and how I Mm -hmm. fucking hate the term community because what it usually means is someone who is like an oppressing class is like, yeah, so ultra density, lack of resources, the need to constantly deploy tactics and strategies just to sort of get by and survive, um, a belonging that's based on how we treat you like shit. That's community right? Like now you've got community to deal with. And so the idea of like, I'm in community because I do not choose to be in community. That's not really community. And And it's the same thing with kindness. And it's the same thing with, you know, everything that's bad happens to you for a great reason and all these kinds of things. And even, you know, uh, even like find beauty in everything, even, you know, this terrible thing that you see, you know, like don't, don't find beauty like I do, which is like on my yacht, like fishing for Marlin and having a beautiful day, like find beauty in like the absolute dregs, like, you know, just do that. And on the other hand, <laughs> they're all redeemed versions of all of that as well. Like, I don't, I don't want to take away someone's right to say, I find beauty in, you know, the dilapidated place that I live, or I find community amongst people that I huddle with when we're scared or, um, you know, and so on and so forth. So it's this whole sort of weird, um, again, this tension of holding these two things. And I'm just sort of working all that out. It's not right. Well, one is prescriptive and one is descriptive, right? So what's what you're describing, the first one of you should be seeing this. You should be thinking that. That's prescriptive. That is the subject who's supposed to know. That is being the person who, from mm-hmm. their yacht or from their shitty apartment or wherever they are, knows something and is telling you. Whereas the other one, is, the second part of what you said is a spontaneous experience. So yeah, absolutely. We don't want it to. And by the way, 90% of the time, kindness is the right thing to do. And mm-hmm. let's say 50% of the time, it's going to solve the fucking problem. So I'm not saying it has no relevance, but when it is prescriptive, I think mm-hmm. is when it gets uh, tricky and false and it mm-hmm. serves something ugly in yourself. So not only you develop mm-hmm. uh, prescribing for another person, what they could do. I think the other thing, all those things you just had in common is conformity. I think we, I have a theory that we live in an extremely conformist era. It's not as obvious because a lot of the conformity is around things I'm all for, like kindness, be kinder. Of course, I'm in favor of that. <laughs> I just, this is just my ultimate example of all this shit. Right. Um, but, uh, but it's the conformity around it. So I had a, a experience recently. I had physical therapy. I broke my leg. My leg had to heal, blah, blah, blah. I had to go to physical therapy, learn how to walk again. And a couple of times they would give me an exercise that either I couldn't do or it was too easy for me. And I would tell them. And the reaction was like, they were upset. 
this uh, this uh, I thought to me this was a symbol to me of what conformist times we live in. No one else in the physical therapy place was saying to the physical therapists, "This is too hard for me. This is too easy for me." Apparently, I was the only uh, bitch who was doing that because they hated me there. And I would bring up an exercise, and I'd like, oh, "Actually, I've never done that one before." And there was this realm of discomfort, as if it was like, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm from Brooklyn. I grew up in the '70s. To me, that's like a declaration of love to me fighting is when you fucking hit someone or when you fuck you like to me but this minor level of disagreement set off waves of discomfort around these people Mm. and i think that uh ties into what we're talking about this drive towards conformity community can mean wonderful things it can mean beautiful things it can also mean this is your family now and if you don't do the right thing you are out of the family yeah. You are alone in the wild and the wilderness. So even if it's focused on good things, kindness. Uh, well, I don't feel like being kind today or kindness isn't fucking solving the problem. The bank has $10,000. It's mine. They're not giving it to me. I'm going to be a fucking bitch until they give it to me. Kindness is not going to make the bank. This is a thing that happened recently. They're, they didn't give me my 10 grand until I was a goddamn cunt to them over and over and over again. And I'm like, I'm sorry. You seem like a lovely person, but I'm also not going to not get my money. I'm not letting this bank take my 10 grand. Um, mm. So I don't know. I think conformity has this role of it, it serves the corporate structure. It serves the economic structure, but it also serves something in us that I'm not sure I understand. Well, I think it's just become so um, conformity has just become so amped up because of surveillance, you know, yeah. and, and the collective surveillance of the discourse yeah. Um, and the collective surveillance mm. on social media. So there are consequences now for conformity in a way that there haven't been before because we've created a digital authoritarian state. You know, all of this is coming back to um, authority again in a, we- yeah. in a weird way. Yeah. So one of the things that I find really interesting is, um, again, this is kind of a, mon- a mundane or, or, or a tried example, but loads of my friends who are working at music festivals this summer said that the thing that they noticed um, most of all, uh, this being the kind of first big summer back, is that kids, you know, the the 17, 18, 19 year olds and, and in the very early 20s, like 21, 22, aren't really drinking that much. They're yep. not, they're not taking loads of drugs mm-hmm. and they're basically not being hedonistic um, in the same way that the people who are five, six, 10 years older than them were. And in a way that's really, really great, you know, because we all need to stop, you know, abusing our bodies, blah, blah, blah. But what is the motivation for that? Is that is what I'm interested in because if the yeah. outcome is, is health and wellness and, you know, more stability and all that kind of stuff and better mental health, fantastic. But I'm more interested in what the trigger is for that. And it has to be that, um, the the level of surveillance, intersocial surveillance, um, you know, among in peer groups is so severe that there is now um, such a massive level of social conformity within um, peer groups and within uh, youth culture that to break from that uh, and to disrupt the the aesthetic and the niceness by being like completely fucked up or something or ending up on a video as a consequence of shaming or actually just like not looking cute in your own constant (laughs) surveillance that's occurring is so detrimental that you're actually um 
you've internalized the algorithm to a degree that it's now actually dictating your pleasure receptors in the meat space um, and, and your any act of wildness or liberation. And so that conformity, that, that goes through everything, everything right now. It's yeah, like such so. a huge driver. Yeah. So I, I was thinking about this podcast, Bad Gaze. I just had the host, Ben Miller and Hugh Lemmy on the show. And they, you know, chronicle bad gays, like people who are both, they'll, they'll do episodes on people who are just like, not the typical gay, like that fits into gay culture, whatever that means, like Roger Casement <laughs> or Dennis Cooper, but then they'll also do truly reprehensible people like Roy Cohn and Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> and um, I was thinking about like how horrible things had gotten that I was I was having these thoughts where I was like, fuck, like, wouldn't like some sort of violent shocks within the (laughs) cultural like realm be really necessary? Like, I, I, like this is, this is, that's a horrible thought to have to think that we need something that is actually culturally like super threatening. So, um, like when I'm thinking about these other kind of bad gays, like the ones that sort of challenge us that, that, that throw things up. I was like, why the fuck is it that like, we're at a point of such deep conformity that like these figures who are truly horrible people can have more of an allure to them than just the sort of standard, you know, field, because the standard field is actually more evil than any single person at this point, which is such a good, that's such a good point. You know, and so when you have that like thing where John Waters, not the Irish John Waters, the American John Waters makes a movie, um, you know, with, with, with Divine, where someone's like, Divine, what's your politics? And she's like, murder everyone now, you know, like, and you're like, fuck yes. Like you have this like rush where you're like, I mean, that of course is very funny and overpronounced, but you can see that actually it opens a door. It breaks something open. It breaks. Yes. Open it's being necessitated in this really horrible way. And this is uh, another two podcasters I had on the show, this show weird studies, which I fucking love. But you like know, one I love of, that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I talked about on the show with them was like, we do not want another, we do not want to need another HP Lovecraft in our midst where someone writes something that's so threatening that it breaks out into the real with its own sort of tentacles of evil, where people think that the Necronomicon is real, where people start worshiping Cthulhu, where people start thinking that Arkham, you know, or whatever it's called, not Arkham, um, what's it called? The university, uh, Miskatonic university is real. Like that, this isn't good, you know, but it will become necessary. The more the conformity sort of spreads and levels everybody out because people will only then respond to ruptures. I actually think a lot of this comes back to the human centipede. (laughs) (laughs) Because I have never watched the human centipede. Don't we <laughs> look like a human centipede concept. on the zoom screen right now? Actually, <laughs> I watched it, but that's the zooming the centipede. Yeah. But yeah. I think that it really, it, it began the contemporary um, censorious uh, gestures. And it began a lot of the, the stuff around what we, what we can't watch. And obviously you had also like, well, the torture porn stuff or whatever, yeah. And the gross out stuff. And there seems to have been, that seems to have been the, like a quite a developed Petri dish for um, things you can't see. Mm. And, and kind of at the same time, what happened was 
the moment of death started to be shown um, in, you know, the real life moment of death started to be shared on social media. Like, I think it comes mm, back to the human yeah. centipede and it comes back to um, the, the first wave of kidnappings of journalists in Afghanistan. And the um, that those two, two things, these are like two post 9-11 cultural moments where live death was shown live to, to the world really kind of triggered both um, a censoriousness and then an absolute prurient explicitness in, in the digital age. And when I was in journalism college, one of the, you know, one of the semesters was all about like ethics and media. And the moment of death was, you know, this thing, this like globally held journalistic thing that you don't show. And a lot of the stuff that we were watching were videos from BBC reports um around the troubles in, in the North and one very famous report where they showed um, a, a cop uh, shoveling up um, the blown limbs of, of bomb victims and putting them into a bag and the, the outcry that this caused. But when the moment of death was broken, um, in particular around uh, the terrorist attacks in Brussels and in Paris where people were uh, one um perpetrator was being shown shot on tv that then broke something in all in this you know cellophane of uh decency and censorship because the art part i don't you know you can it or the 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 the, the, i suppose the art part the entertainment part of something like human centipede was said to be verboten and at the same time, people were gorging on uh, this existential, you know, mortality, terroristic um, visuals online. So I think it goes back to those those two things that then created when then there were new rules about what you can say, what you can see. Mm-hmm. And then that became, uh, you know, bought brought in around this canned thinking of of the digital discourse where it's just this like um, monotonous um, homogenous polyphonic applause of of the same things being said without with their meaning stripped away and kind of reduces critical thinking and that conformity from that censorship births this kind of suffocating thing where as you say Connor the only thing that can break it is the the spectacle uh, even though we are participating in the spectacle all the time and what those spectacles will be. I'm very intrigued by new conspiracy theories emerging with regards to Vladimir Putin uh, about what he's planning, a.k.a. the event um, mm. around these newsphere uh, Gaian, warped versions of Gaian's type um, philosophies that apparently he's quite embedded in. And I'm in, and even, you know, Jordan Peele's new film, Nope is about the spectacle. It's like it's basically like a situationist uh, polemic, you know, and um, I think that those I, I dread to think what those actual flashes and events may be if people feel compelled because to, to perform it on on massive scales. Yeah, I'm thinking when you talk about the Susan Sontag book regarding the pain of others, where, you know, she notes like, look, people think that it's actually repeated exposure to like violent imagery that's bad, but no, it's not that. It's repeated exposure with no idea of what to do about it. Like, it's actually the fact that people have nowhere to go or nothing to do with the repeated 
um, imagery that they see. So like the only thing to do really is to become complacent. And of course, social media like preys on that. It, it gets people to sort of live in a constant state of like diffusing the will and, you know, out, there are all sorts of forces right now that um, are really eroding to the ability to act to the will at all. I mean, there, there is no political will anymore whatsoever. So I think it's the, the fact that we don't have anything, we don't know what to do with it. But then the really fascinating thing is that like art actually art is a doing art is a doing, but it's a doing that exists at its best removed in a sense from the political and economic realm. So we do, and we generate, we regenerate ourselves. We generate something new. We generate new possibilities when we interact with the artistic realm, when we read a novel, when we see a, a profound film, when we listen to music, when we see a painting, when we go to the ballet, whatever it is. And so I think <clears throat> it's not a surprise to me, you know, when you bring up these two sort of parallel, you know, happenings, um, Una, it's like, it, it's never been a surprise to me that when we live in a time when things are so hyper non-consensual when it comes to the political and economic realm, all the conversations around consent get sunk into sex, art, and conversation. Like, what are you allowed to say? What are you allowed to do? What are you allowed to create? And now, obviously, there are good dimensions of those conversations and those contours, and we need to talk about that. But the hyper-focus on that, when, like, it should be aimed at, well, (laughs) I didn't consent to fucking war, Uh, war after war after war in my lifetime. I didn't consent to this economic system. I didn't consent to the brutality of the wage labor relationship that I'm forced into all these kinds of things. But let's talk about like how, you know, this or that in these other realms, which are actually places that, you know, offer a true liberation in a lot of ways Um, that that's where it all sort of filters into. And so that's why I think that art is, you know, and engaging with art is such a profoundly um, needed act because it functions by not functioning in that realm, by being irreducible to function. And that's why art that is reducible to function, that merely has some political message or some sort of glib message is actually becomes useless because it's so focused on function that it just merely becomes an extension of the political or economic apparatus. And it's not an efficient way to communicate. If you have something to say, like a specific thing to say, art is the worst way to say that specific thing. Just say the fucking thing. Don't write a book about saying the thing. Artists (laughs) have things that are too complicated to be expressed in ordinary language, in Mm. ordinary conversation, I should say, not ordinary language, but within the space of ordinary conversation, even a deeper conversation like this. Um, But it's funny, just I'm going to go in a completely different direction, just thinking about something you guys both mentioned are these violent images, this violent imagery that we have not consented to and not asked for that is a huge part of our lives. And we never see, I don't know what this means, but it just got me thinking, we never see what happens after the violence. Mm -hmm. 
that's something that's, I think, maybe a bit unique to these images that pop up on social media or in the news or whatever. And you were talking about uh, post 9-11, but I actually thought about actual 9-11, you know, the guy falling from the building. Don't know who he was, although it is known it can be found. There's the famous imagery of a guy who either fell or jumped from the towers. And those of us who were in New York watching it live, we didn't know what we were seeing. It wasn't clear that was a person, even though they showed the footage over and over again. But there is never any aftermath. So something I think about a lot, which is ghost stories, people are always scared of the ghost, right? The ghost is terrifying. What is this ghost doing in my house? I am here, there's the ghost. And whether it's a movie, a book, there is never anything past that moment. Mm. The actual encounter with the ghost in 90% of horror fiction or, or ghost stories, I should say, is unseen. I can't think of any example right now, although I'm never like at my smartest when I'm, you know, in these conversations. Maybe later I could think of one. Or if you guys can, please jump in. I can't think of one now. You'll be haunted by it. Yeah. I know. I know. And maybe tonight I'll find out. Listen, motherfucker, <laughs> the ghost is going to be like, well, it's not that fucking confusing. We reach, we go. Uh, no, no, we don't want that to happen. No, ghosts, we love you. Just whatever you're doing is good. Uh, I, my building's from the 70s. No ghosts. No ghosts. I live in LA. Um, uh. There's something about the moment of encounter and afterwards. It's like in this violent imagery, whether it's the, it's real imagery, but it becomes sort of fictionalized when we see it in media over and over again. These things that you're talking about, like the people in Afghanistan seeing these journalists killed on screen. I mean, I don't watch stuff like that. Everyone has to have their own metric in my own personal universe. I know there's no like respectful way to watch someone getting murdered on screen. So I don't watch like the George Floyd videos. I don't watch that stuff. But for other people, perhaps it's different. What happens afterwards? It's a, it's just resonating in my head with this ghost story. What happens afterwards? What happens if you actually encounter the ghost? So not what is the shocking minute, what is the moment after seems to be this absence, this hole in our stories that we're telling ourselves mm. through media and, and through fiction. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I, I, that is a, that's a particular way of seizing and utilizing time against people. Um, yeah. And, and and keeping them trapped in a certain moment. Um, there's so many directions to go in all that with you guys. Um, but I think we're gonna we're gonna bring it, <laughs> bring it to an end now. Um, unless did you want to add anything else before we end here, Una? Oh, I was just thinking that it would be great if every single video on the internet or every single viral viral video was just people just like hanging out or doing their shopping or like washing something or just you know it was just all just like normal human behavior having a yeah. conversation about a dog just for a day this is it we are creating that content una that's what we're doing right now <laughs> yes. all about the content <laughs> yes the dullest exactly. conversations possible In i will bring them factory yeah <laughs> Here. But I, I no, I mean, I love that. And I love, I mean, it is, you know, my friend Caitlin Doty, she often talks about that. She's like, I, you know, we, we, people think of death all the time as like car accidents and military and murder, but like mostly it's just someone dying in a hospital mm, yeah, or just someone dying at home. Like it's one of those two things. And like, the image of death is like completely out of whack. And so yeah. that's another sort of version of it. Um, so listen, this conversation could and probably should go on for hours longer. And so I hope 
to bring you both into conversation with each other again. And I hope you'll continue this conversation with each other after this. And uh, thank you so, so much, Sarah Graham and Una Malali. Thank you both. This was so much fun. Thank you guys. Great to meet you. And thanks everybody for listening. Bye now.